0: sought after for their success, and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor.
1: Welcome. I'm Tom Laurie, and I'll be your host today. Thank you for joining us. Our guest mentor today is Google's chief measurement strategist, Neil Hoyne. Neil is also a senior fellow at the Wharton School of at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Converted, The Data Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. We're going to focus on identifying, acquiring, and retaining your high-value customers. And we'll also learn a little bit about Neil's career trajectory. Let's get started and tell me, what is a chief measurement officer?
2: Hey, Tom, thanks for having me. The easiest way to look at it is I work not necessarily with our own internal data, but with thousands of companies around the world and every conceivable market and vertical to figure out how they do anything with data. People always talk about data being the new oil and a lot of companies collect data, but when it comes down to it, not a lot of companies use it. So about six out of every hundred decisions that they make have the benefit of data more than half just based on how executives feel. And there's a tangible benefit if they can figure out how to make not necessarily 100 decisions using data, but getting from that six to maybe seven or eight decisions so that they
1: can make more money and be smarter than their peers. So could a company, what does a, a company, they come to you and you help solve a problem for them? Do, and do you charge them for the service? No.
2: We, we, we help anybody that's a customer of ours, which are a lot of companies, admittedly, several million around the world. Uh, It's just they generally end up on my radar because they have that question to say, how can we do something different with our data? Or sometimes they just want to tap into that expertise to say, I know what's happening in my boardroom. I know what's happening with my team. But what's happening in other industries? Are we making the same mistakes as other people? Should we be doing something differently without necessarily second guessing ourselves? Because Google can see across so many different companies and so many different industries, are there patterns that you can share that we can learn from?
1: So this would be for small companies on up to very large companies, or even organizations, I would imagine, right?
2: Exactly. It's exactly that. And it's a cross-function. So even though people think of Google from a marketing lens, oftentimes those conversations can be held with boards, CEOs, CFOs.
1: Hmm. Well, I didn't know you offered it as a service. I knew you're an expert at the uh, domain, but uh, that's very good. Okay. So what is, let's talk a little bit about the customer. And first, you mentioned in your book that one of the things that got you going is that you were really interested in how executives used or misused or didn't use data. And, I, and there's so much written today about being a digital company. And so tell us a little bit about that part of your journey and what you learned along the way.
2: I mean, the, the starting point of my career, I never wanted to be a data and measurement guy. And arguably, I'd say, even though it's in my title, I'm more around decision making and organizations. And really where it came from was that I saw a lot of research around things companies were doing right. And you go to conferences and you read white papers. and It's all success stories of great leaders and new technology and look how much money they made. And you started getting the sense that there's always something deeper to that story. And so I actually started talking to some professors and they brought up and they said, you know what, even out of Silicon Valley, we don't really hear any stories of failure. It's like every company goes out and they hit a home run right away. And they said, it makes it difficult because we want to learn from other people's mistakes. You know, it's like I work with a great professor. He's a, a negotiations professor, but he also is a, um, a divorce attorney. And I said, well, what's your advice? What do you give to people? He said, well, here's what I see. When I see couples come in, I tell them, you know what? Here's how it's going to work. We're going to cover all the easy stuff. And about halfway through, you two are going to be fighting with each other. And one of you is going to be screaming and shouting and almost walk to that door and leave. And I say, wow, that sounds like a terrible setup for anyone. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, I tell people that. Because if they get to that point, which many do, then they know it's part of the process. They know it's expected. And so if I don't tell them that, they say, look, we came in here and we were on cordial terms and now we're fighting. The process isn't working for us. But if I tell them that failure is part of this, and they expect it, then when they get to that process, they will push to overcome. And so going back to that question, what started me on this journey was very much that same thought, which is to say there were a lot of people working in data and analytics that only see success stories from other companies. And when they hit that point where they're yelling and screaming and finding failure, they think that they're somehow different and that they're alone, that they're doing something wrong. And what I wanted to do was start building out some of these stories to say, no, this happens to everyone. This is part of the process. This is what people don't talk to. And there's lessons about how we can overcome that adversity that gets you through that down moment so you can see success
1: later on. Well, that resonates. I think I had mentioned to you that I've been running a ministry for people that have lost their jobs since the dot-com crash. And we're in our 20th year. Uh, and the thing it comes right to your point though, is that when people show up for our program, they find out they're not alone. They find out that everybody goes through a transition or many transitions. And just having that knowledge that you're not an outlier, but you're part of a larger group of people that have experienced that gives you the opportunity to share the experience and learn. That's exactly. makes a lot of sense. Now when, we're going to talk a lot about the customer today, What is the value of keeping the right customer? Or I guess, how do you find the right customer?
2: Well, I I look at things from a very human, very personal perspective, which is to say, if you look at everybody you know in your own life, not your business, but just your personal life, you will have some people, some friends, some family members, some mentors that you couldn't imagine your life without. But you'll also have some people that are very transactional. The Uber driver that brought you back from the airport, great for that time, but unlikely that your paths will cross again. It turns out for most businesses, this is the same with your customer base. Everyone could be a friend, everyone could be a customer, but there's going to be some customers that are incredibly important, incredibly valuable, who your business could not survive without, and other customers that while it was good for that one moment, you're unlikely to see them again no matter how hard you try. The question is, can you understand who is who? Now, in our personal life, we get to have those interactions. We get to form those heuristics. We know who's in what bucket. But often with customers, especially online, you see IDs, you see CRM systems, you see just records of when people buy. And so we just like to go a little bit deeper and to say, can we identify who those people are? And can we tell you how you find more of them?
1: I... Uh... Saw doing some homework, I, I saw that American Airlines has a program. I guess they call it the Helix Score. Mm-hmm. And they try to make sure that certain groups, a certain group of customers gets treated a little better than another group. And it was interesting because it was based on their recent experience with the airline and whether it was a good experience or a bad experience, coupled with how often they fly and the amount of revenue that they bring into it. So if you get one, if you're a platinum one, it's because you've had a relatively good experience 2 you've had something happen to you and maybe slight risk of leaving. And then three, you have something terrible that's happened with American airlines and you're probably going to leave. I just, I thought that was interesting. There's a different way of looking at their data and then tailoring uh, the experience for that group of people and doing some extra special things. So we're going to get into more of that in a second, but let's um, talk a little bit about, I want to get to the uh, customer lifetime value. Uh, but I think as a context for the audience, let's talk a little bit. And I know you you, you and I both know the same individual that taught us some of this stuff. Uh, Mike Hansen's from UCLA. The, the acquisition cost of a customer. And the, and the maintenance cost of a customer, there's a big difference. And we're, we're going to be uh, going to break first. And let's come back. Hold that thought. Let's come back in a second and talk about uh, the, the various uh, cost elements and finding a customer and keeping a customer. We're going to be right back with Google's chief measurement officer, Neil Hoyne, and we're talking about why all customers are not created equal. The Mentors is now in its sixth year. Check out past shows by going to our website, thementorsradio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show.
0: And now, back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Tom Laurie, and I'm with Google's Neil Hoyne. We're discussing how to identify, acquire, and retain your high value customers. Remember, you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast on iTunes. TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe to the mentorsradio.com. So when we left the last segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the big differences that there are in acquiring a customer and maintaining a customer. Could Let's start there and then we'll go to the lifetime value of a customer.
2: Sure. Let's just let's just jump right in. Let's first assume, and this is generally what we see in the data, that customers have a certain propensity. Based on who you are, your products and services, are they a natural fit? And once we know that, we can get a sense, and we'll talk about this with lifetime value, how long they're going to stick around, how much they're going to spend. And that gives us a value, right? How much is that relationship going to bring to you in your life? The other side, Tom, which you brought up right before the break is, well, how much is that going to cost you? You know, you may know some people that are really valuable to you, but they're really high maintenance. They want a lot of your time, a lot of your attention. They know their value to you, so they demand a little bit more. But then there's also people, look, they may not be worth as much to your business, but they don't require anything. They just come by and regularly purchase. And what's important for us to know is really both sides of that equation. How much value is someone going to bring? How much are they going to spend and for how long? And how much is it going to cost you to capture that value? This is how we wanna look at these relationships.
1: And so that takes us to, how do we do that? What do you do? There you go. I've got a problem. I've gotta find these high value people,
2: so guide me. How do you find them? Well, the first thing is, is this is where customer lifetime value comes in. Now I'll tell you, regrettably, if a lot of people go to Google and they type how to calculate lifetime value, a lot of the advice is wrong. It's popular, but it's wrong. That's why it's ranked high on Google. It's popular. People click on it. The book explains a little bit about what the best-in-class approaches are, what we know from over 40 years of research in the field. It's a lot of research. But what are you really doing with lifetime value? And it's very basic level. It's similar, and I joke around, to, you know, my wife had a grandmother who could look at people and would know right away if they were going to be a great person for her or not. Thankfully, I got the thumbs up. (laughs) But that's exactly what we're doing with lifetime value is we're using some of these, some of this math to go through and say, based on what we know about your customers, are these going to be customers that you're glad you met, or are these going to be customers that you could have done without. And it's done at an individual level, so you can look at all your individual customers and say, I really want Neil, he's perfect and this person maybe not as much. And so if you picture this, it very much comes out as a spreadsheet where the first column is the names of every customer you have, or maybe their email address, however you know them, and the second column being, well, what's that value? Now, what happens? Well, where, where do we go from there? Now that we know who our customers are, this is where businesses have a lot of fun. This third step, in that spreadsheet, you add in a third column, well, where did you meet these people? Or in the fourth column, what products did they buy? Or in the fifth column, do they always use coupon codes? And as you group customers together you start seeing patterns to say hey really great customers came from this channel or really poor customers always use these coupon codes or come to us at this time of year or our better customers are ones that buy from this product category and this starts to give you that playbook again just very much using that very personal lens to say who are the people that my business is most compatible with and each of these questions hopefully gives you an insight of who you can focus on. So if one particular marketing channel is bringing you great people, or you know great people are buying this particular product, you know where to go out and, and to find more of these people or what to avoid. And then slowly your business evolves to be built really for the people you're going to have the best relationships with.
1: So this could be done, I mean, you talked about the spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. This could be done by a retailer or a restaurateur or anybody if they kept the data or secured that There's a lot of ways you can get the data. Uh, but it sounds like the concept, and this is what I want to get at for the broader audience, what you're talking about is something that has application, not just in a big company like Google or Johnson & Johnson, but beyond that.
2: It's it's imp- it's imp- Actually, it's even more important for the small and medium-sized businesses. Those that are saying, I want an advantage over other companies, a vast majority of companies are going out and they're just looking at transactions. How many products did we sell today? Now, imagine you're that business that says, look, I don't want to focus on just that number. I want to focus on who's going to be the person that will come back tomorrow and the day after and not require a lot of money to do so. That's a substantial benefit in a market that will help your company grow and accelerate past those companies that are just looking at how many more products they can pump out into the marketplace today.
1: And when do you say goodbye to a customer? Or do you?
2: (laughs) Well, you, you assume good relationships. All relationships end at some point. The important part is to know what to do with it. So in some cases, you may look and say, these are high lifetime value customers that disappeared and they shouldn't. And then you say, well, we want to get involved. We want to make sure we make the right offer to them. Or there may be customers that say, look, they're leaving, but they weren't going to spend a lot of money anyway. So you don't want to roll out the red carpet and start sending them coupons and discounts because really they're just going to stick around as long as you're giving them free things. And then there's going to be those customers in the middle who, hey, you're not worth a lot, but I'd like to keep you around. So I'll make some type of offer, just nothing aggressive. And so really what you're doing is you're recognizing that it's not a one size fits all, that these relationships will end and you just have to decide how you want to respond. Again, going back to that uh, going back to that framework, great friend and family member, you're going to do anything you can to keep them because they're worth it. All right, you didn't hear from the taxi driver the next day. That's okay. You open up the app and you find a replacement. You shouldn't worry about it. And this framework is all around knowing who falls into what bucket.
1: This is Tom Lohr. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. Today, we're talking with Google's Neil Hoyne. It's uh so when you talk about getting rid of, so it's a little bit like courtship in a sense, isn't it? I mean, you're- Exactly like <laughs> it. Yeah. You learn <laughs> something that and way, say right? goodbye.
2: That, that's exactly it. And, and, and the rules of the game follow along. It's that, number one, where we started, that people are different for your business. They're worth different amounts. The second part, that we can calculate who they are. We can understand that. The third is we can understand who's most compatible with us. And the fourth is we can make different decisions because of it. It's the same thing we do every day in life. What happened to a lot of companies, it's funny, when I talk to them, they know this intuitively. This is how we exist as human beings. But they were taught this other marketing and business language, which goes counter to their own intuition and experience. So it's like they're learning a second language. And really what I'm saying is, no, 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 you don't need that second language anymore. Let's go back to what you know. You have the permission to do it. I'll just show you how you connect some of the dots.
1: So in American Airlines case, what they've done is they've looked at those high value, high dollar customers. And if they've had a bad experience, which could put them at risk of going somewhere else, they come back and do something extra special for them. That's what you're, you're on an exception basis, basis. They're saying these people are important to us. They've been good customers. They had a bad experience. So who knows, maybe they give them a free ticket somewhere. I don't know, but. I, I can that's, see where that plays out because that would have, I do a lot of flying. You do a lot of flying. Uh, and when you're particularly in these days of travel, uh, get special care, it really makes a difference.
2: That That's exactly it. They look for when they can make the most of that moment, when their time and attention is needed. And that's how they direct their resources. And I, I hate to say it. If you call up and you complain and they're looking at to say, hey, you're not spending a lot in the past and you probably won't spend that much in the future, you may get an apology Well, we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll see you again. And that's important for American Airlines. I think their outgoing CEO a couple years ago admitted that somewhere around 80% of the flyers on their plane won't fly with the airline again for the next 12 months. So how responsive do you really want to be to those complaints versus a 10% of flyers on that plane who may drive upwards of 70% of their revenue? Knowing who is who is important.
1: And- a number that I see a lot, uh, particularly when you go to uh, websites, I guess it's in a broader sense, the churn rate. But the churn rate, what you're talking about is a whole different thing, and, and it may even be outdated today.
2: I'm just thinking of a different way to look at churn.
1: Sometimes companies
2: will set arbitrary rules. If we haven't seen you in three months or 12 months, we're worried about you. In this case, you're saying, no, we know that we have a certain rhythm with every customer. And this approach will tell us, look, we don't expect to see Neil again this year. And that's okay, because that's how he buys. But Tom, if you're flying with them every week and they don't see you for two weeks, then that's the right time for them to intervene. And so it's just a more thoughtful approach. Yep.
1: We'll be right back with Google's Chief Measurement Officer, Neil Hoyne. And we're talking about why customers, why all customers are not created equal. You can now listen to our Saturday broadcast, not only on Salem Radio in Northern California, but live anywhere in the world on iHeartRadio or TuneIn Radio. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show.
0: And now back to the mentors where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Tom lawyer. And I'm with Google's Neil Hoyne. We're discussing how to identify acquire and retain your high value customers. If you've tuned in later, want to make sure you do not miss future shows, go to our website or your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the mentors radio. Um, Let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about uh, websites or people walking in the store uh, when they walk, you make a comment about 201 customer making 262 visits, but treated the same all the time. Let's talk about being, treating people the same all the time. What do you do to vary that experience and how do you get the information to know how to vary that experience? So uh, when
2: we started, we talked a lot about the short-term problem, where companies only focus on what happens right away. And by and large, a lot of companies look and say, you came to my website, you came to my store, did you buy or not buy? And if you bought, that's a successful visit. If you didn't, oh, better luck next time. But they don't start tying those things together in the view of a customer. They look at them just as interactions. And so if a customer were to come back to your physical store five or six or 10 times, What might happen? You might vary your approach. You may give them a different message. You may say, hey, you're back. What are you looking for? How can we help you? Maybe you're more aggressive on pricing and promotions. By and large, very few companies do that online today. They let everyone come back continually receiving the same experience without customizing to what they're learning about the customer on each visit.
1: And this customizing that can be done digitally. You pick up some signal or something and then you know how to go back i mean the question is so i've got this problem how do i solve it i mean i realize i mean it's just like meeting people if you see them 200 times you're going to ask different questions now i'm trying to figure out how do i do it digitally
2: well the first step is to recognize that the problem exists that two three four percent of customers will come and will come often and oftentimes even though they may buy they're going to be grossly unprofitable when they do and so for a lot of companies it starts by saying Let's just look at how many times each customer is coming to our website. And after they get through a certain number of times, maybe we stop marketing to them. Or maybe we offer them a promotional message to see if we can tip them across the finish line. The larger message is sometimes companies will say, you know what, we don't want to look at everyone every day. We have lots of things to do. So instead, they look through their customer file and they say, let's see how many times every customer has come to our website. How much did we have to pay for that customer? Some companies even count up the number of minutes you talk to them on the phone and say, how much time did we have to spend servicing you? And they make a decision to say, is that worth it? Now, the difference is some companies will just say, look, this is how much we pay for advertising. This is how many minutes we spend on the phone with all customers. Here, we're just saying to start breaking that down on an individual customer basis How much does each customer take and what type of insights can you go and what would you do differently if people keep taking up more and more of your company's resources. As it turns out, you'll generally find that small portions of your customers take up large amounts of your time. Two or 3% of customers, it may not seem a lot, it may not seem like it's worth your time to solve that problem, until in some cases I've seen upwards of 10 to 20% of marketing resources spent just on those few customers.
1: So explain to the audience the Pareto principle.
2: It's otherwise known as the 80-20 rule. Right. You're going to see 80% of your value coming from 20% of your customers. In some businesses, like mobile games, it's even more dramatic, where 98% of value comes from 0.2% of customers. And so oftentimes, the success and failure of your business is not simply how many products you sell. It's how many of those great customers you can acquire along the way. They're going to make or break your business.
1: So for our audience, two things you walk away from the show is the customer lifetime value critical. And I'd also say the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, which I found over the years, it's kind of like something I've been doing my entire career. But a lot of people really aren't aware of it. You look at 20% of your personal relationships. Will probably be 80% of the value that you're going to get from your relationships. And you're spending, I'm not saying you shouldn't spend time with other people, but I'm just saying this whole 80 20 principle really works on a lot of things. And and in the book, you mentioned about Netflix. And of course, it was a different subject with regards to recommendations. Uh, But talk about Netflix, it was what 8% of the, uh, the, people that watch all their shows, uh, tell, you tell the story. So here's, here's the way to
2: look at it, is that when we're looking at relationships, there's three things you can do. You can acquire people who are valuable to you. That's the first part. So you want to know who those people are and where to find them. Second is you can develop the relationships you have. And the third is that you can retain those customers. Now, companies like Netflix and Amazon do a lot in the middle part to say, we spent all this money acquiring you. We think you're a great customer. How do we make sure that we keep adding to the relationship so that we're providing value? And in those cases, it's just a thoughtful approach to say, for those customers that we have, what do they want next? What can we deliver next? Online, it takes the form of recommendation engines. Amazon in particular, I think that it's something around 40 45% of their revenue comes from existing customers and that recommendation engine. But they're a little bit thoughtful about it. So for instance, if you buy a toy, the obvious thing on a recommendation engine will be, well, we want to give you the batteries because you need batteries to operate that toy. But Amazon also realized to say, why would we give somebody an obvious recommendation? If they know they need batteries, they're going to find batteries. Can we surface you something that you might not have found on your own? You might not have thought existed. And so they take that risk to show you something new, to show you something new you probably didn't know about them. And this just opens a different room to say, oh, I didn't know you had that. I didn't know I could buy that from you. And again, it's the same way that we build personal relationships. Someone may know you within one context, but there may be different ways that you can work together if only you have the opportunity to show them. And so what I encourage you to do is not only do you have your customers and you have those relationships, but you always want to look for new ways to expand the value that you two can make together. So trying new approaches, new products, and surfacing it to those existing customers with that question to say, how does our relationship respond? So if you take that customer lifetime value number we discussed earlier, you know how much that relationship is worth. You may be surprised to know what some retailers will do is calculate it again for each relationship every month. And they'll say, if it went up or it went down, what did we do differently with that customer during this period? Did we introduce them to a new product or service and we saw that number go up? Now they have a reason to stick around. If it went down, did they have a poor interaction? Did we fall short on our commitment not shipping them a product on time or not providing them with good customer service? But now you have that North Star to measure it as opposed to what a lot of companies are doing today, which is simply, well, did this customer buy a product again this week or today? And
1: if not, I don't care. So it's all about the people. It's a, So when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the questions that we need to ask and how you arrive at the questions. So we're going to be back in a second with Google's chief measurement officer, Neil Hoyne. And we're talking about why all customers are not created equal. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show.
0: And now... Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Tom Lurie, and I'm with Google's Neil Hoyne. We're discussing how to identify, acquire, and retain your high-value customers. So as part of this, I mean, it's one thing. You got the data. You got these customers. Now, and you've asked a lot of questions throughout the show. I've heard a lot of questions that you're asking about these customers, but now, let's say I'm in a company and we're we're looking at the data and we're trying to say How what do you recommend f- for a company in developing the questions? So it seemed to me the questions are going to be absolutely critical. Asking the right questions got to be, it's got to be right on the money. You know, I I used to think so as well.
2: Uh, I now actually encourage companies simply to have that curiosity. Oftentimes, within a lot of companies, what you'll see is they have an annual survey, a customer survey that's always the same 10 or 15 questions. Every customer never changes, and they meticulously will measure week after week if it goes up or down. But very much like a regular conversation you would have in real life, you may have different curiosities that you'd like to ask. Tom, if I saw you in a store, I may ask you a question that I may not ask somebody else. Because I'm just curious. I see the way you respond to a product or what you're looking at. Or maybe you'll share some anecdotal evidence of what you need that product for. And then my response will help me provide better service. But that's why I ask those questions. And a lot of companies forget that they can bring that over online. They just don't ask enough questions. So the checkout process looks the same. The thank you page is always the same. What best companies do is they'll say, "Look, whenever there's an opportunity for us to learn more, about the customer we're going to take it. What does the research show the best time to ask a question? On the thank you page. That's the height of trust. Somebody just gave you their money. They're really hoping you get their product, but you have this page and what do a lot of companies do? They say, thank you, we're done here, go on your way. That's actually a great time to ask additional questions. Where did you hear about us? How much money are you spending with us versus our competitors? Or sometimes we like to ask, you know. Are there things you could do better? How could we improve? Now, here's an interesting thing and why I bring up that question. One One of my favorite examples from the book is that oftentimes companies will ask. They'll say, what can we do better for you? And they like this because we can learn. We learn from our mistakes. Well, as it turns out, when you ask people where you fell short, how you can improve, there's a risk that it actually makes those memories more salient. People start thinking, oh, I want to be helpful. What were times you let me down? I spent a little bit too much time on the phone. I wish your prices were cheaper. As it turns out, that actually harms the relationship going forward because it leaves them almost with a bad taste in their mouth, even though they want it to be helpful. So a lot of research shows that one of the best questions you can ask is, what did we do right? What did you like the most about our products? And it turns out when they tried this in a retail setting, that customers actually had a better relationship. They had a higher lifetime value with those customers, with that business when they were focused on what was positive, what that business did right. They did this even on a B2B side. Someone had a trial product and halfway through, they said, what do you love the most about this trial? And they saw more than 30% improvement of customers on that trial that then bought the full product afterwards because they were focused on what that company did right for them. And so there's certainly an art and there's a science to it, but the biggest mistake for a lot of companies is they simply don't ask. They just say, thank you, on your way, We'll use the data that we have.
1: This is Tom Lohr. You're listening to Mentors Radio. Today, we're talking to Google's Neil Hoyt. So when I first started going through your book, it resonated with me in another way. I grew up in a sales distribution company called American Hospital Supply, which merged with Baxter back in the 80s. We were really heavily focused on selling, selling technique. We use things. I don't know if you ever heard of it, the Xerox selling skills program. And there are other programs like that. But the key was, uh, and I can tell you, the times I traveled with salesmen into the field, you don't go in and just tell them what you, why your, your product is great. I saw customer or salesman after salesman do that, and the doctor just goes tone deaf. I'm in the healthcare field, and then there were the other ones that asked questions: "What's your problem? How are you?" And they knew enough about all the products. How are you doing with infection rates or whatever? and they'd go through all these questions and they'd find out what the real issue was for the, uh, for the doctor. And they take our product and come in and match one of the benefits, not all of them to how we solve the problem. And in many ways, it's a similar process. You're, you're looking at this customer, you're asking a lot of questions so you know where to come in and meet their needs. Does that that make sense to you? That that's
2: exactly what it is. And in fact, I tell this joke early on in the book Where I say, look, if your goal is, as you say, if your goal is simply to sell and you're looking at how many products you sold through, then you want to go in and just talk about your product and get to that answer. But if you start asking questions, you're looking at that longer term relationship. And I contrast it to say a lot of marketing, unfortunately, today looks very much like that former example, which is marketers going through and saying, click now, buy now, buy what I have. And if you don't, all right, well, then we'll move on. It's a game of volume. They don't have a lot of incentive to take a step back. What are you looking for? How can I help you? What can I learn? And that asking questions is a critical part, not only of getting to that eventual yes, but of building that long-term relationship with the customer so you know how you can service them in the future.
1: So with all of these tools and some pretty smart people using them very effectively, are customers today becoming more demanding? I'd say customers aren't
2: necessarily becoming more demanding, they're just putting value on different things. And I think some companies struggle because they built their business around what customers wanted yesterday. And when customers come in and ask for new things, they say, "Well, I'm supposed to be doing everything I was doing and all these new things." But that's a really business-oriented sense of the uh, of the word, right? What, what 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 are your demands? What are your functions and features? I instead say, I say, look, what you're doing is you're just meeting new people. And if you look at them as customers, as individuals, you're finding that they're just raising their hand and saying, look, what you used to do in the past doesn't matter as much to me. I may now I care more about the time you ship your product. I care more about trust. I care more about privacy in my data. And these are just new ideas that customers are expressing. And it's just being able to look more at them as just changing and moving into a different direction than you and all the historical capabilities you've already built.
1: i like the answer to the question uh that i asked earlier uh with regards to the questions and putting questions together and you, you talked about curiosity um you had a you had a quote in there which i i guarantee i'm going to be used over and over again and it has to do with the data set and you said everybody wants things perfect they don't want to move forward until the data sparkles until it's collected with no bias until the models are proven and validated, so they do nothing at all. That is a very profound statement, and I'll just relate it to what I do in building companies. Venture capitalists are like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies—they're right? not as venturesome as you think. I'm just saying <laughs> it's—it's a—it's a human. Talk a little bit about that. It's just we, such we, we, a
2: we human are risk-averse.
1: Yeah, we're risk-averse. We don't like
2: to take chances. We want things to be perfect. The challenge, though, is sometime, and I think it happened in the past five or six years. It became an acceptable answer. So if I haven't bored you with it, I'm going to bring this back to a personal relationship. It's like, you see, if I, saw, if I saw my wife across the room before I got to know her and say, look, she is absolutely perfect. And in order for me to approach her, I need to know exactly what to say. Because if I don't, I'm going to waste that opportunity and I can't possibly do it. You know what you do? You sit there on the couch, you sit there at the table and you don't say anything. And that's what too many companies are caught up in, is they're saying, look, I I don't know what to say. I don't want to be perfect. I don't want to make a fool out of myself. So I'm going to sit there and capture the data sometime for years until I think I have the right answer. And who's outperforming them? The company that says, look, here's the best information I have right now. I need to take a chance. Let's go do it. The world, the business world does not respond. It does not recognize perfect data. No such thing exists. It recognizes people that are just going to be incrementally better than everyone else. And if the market is sitting there saying, well, we're not going to do anything until we have perfect data, the companies that are going to have success are going to be ones that simply say, we have enough and we're going to take a risk. And some of those risks may not pay off. But if you look at it as investors do as a portfolio, by and large, you're going to be better off than the companies that never play at all.
1: And on an incremental basis, you're going to learn by doing, and you may fail, but you can adapt. You're going to learn. Agile, learn, come back with a different question.
2: That's exactly it. You're going to know just a little bit more than those people that never tried to begin with.
1: Well, we're going to come back for one more segment with Google's chief measurement officer, Neil Hoyne. We're talking about why all customers are not created equal. You'll find all of our show notes and links at the mentorsradio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Tom Laurie, and I'm with Google's Neil Hoyne. We're discussing how to identify, acquire, and retain your high-value customers. So we were talking in the, in the break, and let's bring a little bit of that into the last segment here. I had other things to talk about, but I, I've already talked to Neil about coming back. Maybe next year we're going to talk about some other things, but... Uh, the idea of being right, this whole idea about people, the human nature part of this, and also selling, uh, I've learned over the years, you know, so much of it is emotion. It's not all rational.
2: That's true. I mean, that's, that's part of being human. And it's not so much, I, I don't say, it's not necessarily us being right or perfectionist. People say that there's often just this avoidance of the pain of being wrong. It's well-known, human beings will look at risk and losses twice as more as they will at gains. And so they do and they say, well, what's the safest way that I could do this? How do I get perfect data? How do I make a perfect decision? What's the perfect thing to say to someone? What's the perfect thing to put on my resume? And they overthink that particular problem. And with their site, it's just kind of a reminder is to say, you, you have to get out there. You have to try because there's two values there. One is that a vast majority of companies as well as people are obsessing about the question of perfection because this is a very human attribute. Not enough are actually doing a lot are thinking. And to say, that's your first advantage is that there's not as many people asking and trying as you may think. The second is that you have to be able to learn from those mistakes. If you don't go up and have that conversation with the, the woman across the bar, if you don't submit your resume and try to get some feedback for it, if you don't try different things about the way you position your talents and your skills or your company, even if they fail, you're going to learn. The only time I tell companies or individuals they truly fail is if you do something and you learn nothing from it. And I mean this, even if you're successful, if you go out and you try selling a product and customers buy, but you come back to the office and you don't know why they bought, or you try pitching your product and companies say no, but you don't know why they turned you down, then that means you can't improve your next approach. You're still working with the same data. But if you can learn that, now you'll know something that the rest of the market doesn't. And you can apply that to the next time you go out. And the only way you can do that is by trying.
1: So we're going to cut to your personal life and pick up on that point. Go ahead. Tell us about your interview at Google on how you got hired how many times did you talk to them
2: oh more more than 30 times i i have so many rejection letters not only from Google but from this is when i left UCLA in 2009 it was i think every company that i applied for at that time turned me down and then 2 years later when i left my 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 company at that time to go to Google just rejection letter after rejection letter you know and a lot of people look at me in my career and they're like wow you did so well at Google Google was smart to find you it was, I said, no, I said, the process is imperfect. Study after study can't find a correlation between people, executives, and their ability to hire. Yeah, if you ask every executive, I've hired some good people and some bad people. There's no correlation to anybody in their ability to hire, which means how many times can you go out there and get in front of a company and learn how to respond and interact with them? When I started with Google, a short story, I thought I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a product manager. Right, And that's how I built my story. And they said no. And I learned and I said, well, I guess Google doesn't think I'm a product manager. Now, I could continue to apply and just to force my position on them. Eventually, I applied one day to five positions all at once. And the recruiter calls me up. And he says, Neil, you applied to five roles. What do you really want to do? Now, old Neil would have said, I want to be a product manager. But instead, I said, let's try something different. I said, let's take a risk here. I said, I want to do whatever I can do at your company where I can create the most value. I can't learn that from the outside. You tell me where my background and my experience applies and I will be thrilled to work in that position. And it was just that single change gave the recruiter the room to say, hey, I have a sixth position I didn't put out there. And that's the one that they actually put me in. That's the one that I got a job for, but it was only going through all those failures and all those attempts, did I learn different ways to position my skills and my attributes and to look internally to say, what's really important? Is it really important that I become a product manager? That's just a title. Or is it really important that I work with this great culture of really smart people? And it turned out to be more of the latter.
1: And how long have you been at Google?
2: Uh, It's about 11 and a half years right now.
1: 11 and a half years. Well, we're going to close on that note. Thank you very much for your time. That's it till next week. At the same time, our guest has been Google's chief measurement officer, Neil Hoyne. We've been discussing how to identify, acquire, and retain your high value customers. You'll find a link to his new book, Converted the data-driven way to win customers' hearts. on the, You'll find that on the website, thementorsradio.com. Remember, if you tuned in late, you can listen to this and past shows by downloading podcasts by going to our website, www.thementorsradio.com. When you're there, make it easy for yourself. Subscribe to future shows. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next weekend at this time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio Show. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all that you can be and help keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness.
0: It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.